Welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Barron. Eco Inquiry Podcast is recording on the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe. We are on the Williams Treaty. Our closest Indigenous partners in education are the Chippewa of Georgina Island First Nation. Today, our guest is Pam Miller. Pam Miller is the Toronto District School Board's instructional leader for eco schools. Last year, in the 2021 school year, Pam taught grade eight virtual school. Pam speaks to us about how to develop empathy and other principles of ecological literacy, as well as how to support student engagement, leadership, and eco action. Let's get started. Welcome to the Eco Inquiry podcast. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Pam Miller. Pam is the instructional leader at uh, Eco Schools in the Sustainability Department at TDSB. She uh, lives in Toronto, the traditional territory of Treaty 13, um, and the traditional territory of the Mississauga of the Credit First Nation. Welcome, Thank Pam. You. Thank you for joining us. And I want to let you know, um, now that I'm at the cottage talking to you, I did double check that I am on the Anishinaabekwaki, and I practiced it, but I didn't get it quite right, but Treaty 20, and it's the Williams Treaty of Rice Lake of 1818. Thank you for sharing that with us, and thank you for taking your time. It, this will air in the fall, but uh, as listeners know, we, I'm having these interviews in July. So thank you for taking time away from your family while you're at your cottage. And I really, really appreciate you speaking with us. So I'm going to dive right in. Uh, can you tell us about your environmental education citizen journey? What brought you, what brought you to this work, Pam? Oh, I know. It was so much fun kind of thinking back because we've been doing a lot of work with ecological identity and kind of connecting those key pieces. And so I think a real key piece for me was I had a dad who was an outdoor educator. And I think as a kid, it was kicking and screaming uh, getting outside, but I soon came to love it. Um, very fun. And he worked at London Teachers College and then it soon became Old House uh, through Western. And so he was the outdoor education prof there. So I was part of all those trips and and um, winter, spring, fall, you name it, you know, doing all kinds of things. So that naturally led me to, uh, well, I think naturally led me to be actually a, uh, the nature director at a number of camps. So um, I was in Kamoka area and I remember Scarlet Tenenders and Baltimore Orioles and taking the kids into the creeks and doing art and, you know, having so much fun. Of course, poison ivy was a big part of my life. Wow. <laughs> through the woods. Um, I recognize that of all plants. I now know it. Uh, anyway. And are you quite allergic to it? I was for a number of years. I did get some this year and it was just a couple of spots. So I was quite thankful, but yeah, poison ivy and me. This is just uh, ringing so many bells. So your dad was an outdoor educator. And as soon as you said kicking and screaming, I mean, with my own children, when I was at outdoor education centers and they were toddlers, you know, I had them do cross country skiing lessons on the weekend. We were constantly on canoe trips. And my son, when he was three or four, you know, sitting in the canoe said, mom, I love your adventures, but they're very tiring. So it's interesting that, you know, you say kicking and screaming at first. And 
Can you elaborate on that for just a sec for what shifted? What shifted with you of going, okay, this, this is something that I don't want to do every single second to, ah, I have this in me. This is, this is really a part of who I am. You know, that's a really good question. I can remember, for example, Thanksgiving, uh, mom would make dad take us out. So there were three of us and he would, uh, for sure enroll probably the other neighborhood kids so there was a family that also had three and interesting enough two girls and a boy and two girls and a boy so we were good friends with each of the others and you know we were to go on the two and a half hour hike so that we could have an appetite for thanksgiving dinner and it may be snowy because it you know late october or maybe cold and you know we'd have to listen and be still and listen to the chickadees and listen to the birds and and hike forever and or cross-country skiing with saga beach 10k in 10k out and i think the competitive nature of my dad or the maybe the exactly the tiring it wasn't always uh from a pedagogical space, I realized at a kid's level, it was more like we had to arise to his level. Right. I remember that with some cross-country ski trips when I was first starting out. And I realized through those experiences that I tended toward hypoglycemia, snacks are huge. So this whole Maslow before bloom, this is a really important point that when we take children outside, we have to attend to their basic needs in order for it to be an enjoyable experience. Our first big aha moment here, right, as outdoor educators. Absolutely. And it shifted when I was in camps because camps are very kid friendly. So all of a sudden I loved doing this stuff. And then I realized I had knowledge about this stuff. Like I could make a fire. I actually knew what the bird songs were. I knew what the plants were. And I knew what the rocks were. I just knew it, but then it was on my own terms. And so I think that ownership um, was key. And again, doing it at my own pace. And then you'd have an empathy for your own experience that you could say, okay, well, I need to go to the level, like you said, of where the students are at. As educators, we start where the students are at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, you know, going to Long Point, uh, I got to go to Long Point, dad, you know, signed me up. And, and this is typical, he would sign me up for all these camps. And, and then when I talked to someone later in life, they said, you got to do that? And I'm like, yeah, and it was so much fun, because there was five other teens there. And we were like banding birds, but we were connecting as teens with an adult you know, doing, uh, you know, cool stuff, but right. without being told what to do. It was very different. Right. That's yeah. exciting. So then in, so what did you study, Pam, after high school? Did you continue on in that journey? Yeah, well, it's funny. I thought I would go into natural resources and be a forester. Uh, so I, I ended up going to Waterloo my first year at a program called Man and the Environment. I of mean, course. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and that was the first sort of foray into environmental issues. As And I kind of think about that in my identity piece in that I love the outdoors, but I hadn't really connected all the pieces of in terms of the outdoors that was at risk or the outdoors, you know. So the environmental are, education piece. So you were doing lots of outdoor rec and connecting to nature, yeah. but the justice issues and environmental ed was starting to come in. 
Yeah, just just a bit. And then really as an outdoor educator, we actually had an intern from Queens that said, well, your programs are really outdoor friendly, but they're not teaching about the environment. And then reading more like Steve and Mater stuff, you know, you know, what's the purpose of outdoor education? If and and then reading, you know, stuff that was about, well, just being in nature doesn't mean that they'll develop pro environmental. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So trying to figure out, okay, what does that actually mean? And then of course, you know, kids in outdoor education saying, you know, this is the best day of my life, you know, best trip ever. But then when you go to their schoolyard, the teachers would tell you that the kids would say, well, nature's out there, you know, not right. here. Meaning out there at the outdoor ed center. So you've, you noticed really early on that disconnect between the outdoor ed center day trip experience and then, okay, so what we have so many things we could talk about uh do you want to talk about how you evolved in making some of that that connection and that carryover for the outdoor education center visit to um okay so you are the instructional lead for eco schools yeah so so where where are some of the connections how did you naturally bridge them right well interesting enough um, the outdoor education department started to work with Richard Christie and the environmental education department. And that was early in the years where e uh, Richard's team started with the eco school. So just when the board amalgamated, uh, we started to get the wealth of different departments working together. And so we had an outdoor education institute run by the education, sorry, run by Richard Christie's team. So it was Marsha, uh, I was going to say she was the instructional leader at the time and they ran this amazing institute which Hillary and I attended and they really talked about how these things intersect and they brought in uh, Dr. Art Sussman who talked about climate change and the state of our planet and really kind of introduced us to sense of place and these were new concepts for us as outdoor educators. So that would and have so been what about 2000, 2000, somewhere between 2000 and 2005, somewhere in there, was it even earlier? No, I think you're right. I was trying to think of the birth of my kids. So it was after yeah, 2000. Yeah, that's how I date my life too. Yeah. Uh, 2002, maybe 2005. Mm -hmm. um, probably very close to that because if eco schools uh, is now coming sort of 15 years old, mm -hmm. maybe we're coming up to our 20th anniversary. I think 20th, uh, yeah. And I remember inviting Catherine Mailer, who was instrumental yes. in starting eco schools, to York Region. I was chair of the Outdoor Ed Center um, committee or the Outdoor Committee for York Region District School Board, and I invited Catherine Mailer to talk about the origin of eco schools. And so that was around that same time. We didn't even know each other then. <laughs> no, we know. No, I think I had just met Hillary actually at a COEO conference. Okay, so well, that's when I met you was that COEO conference where Ecom and OC and COEO were all together. Right, right. Okay, so you're starting to put together environmental ed and outdoor ed in the TDSB and eco schools mm -hmm. and bringing that in. Okay. And so we started to realize that, um, and the, I'm still in outdoor ed at this point. And so our center adopted a school. We adopted a local school, which is really cool. So yeah. we decided to kind of do this almost experiment. If kids 
had outdoor education on their schoolyard, how did that impact their experience at the field study center? And we were also looking at how could we work with the educators at the school and so that they also felt more comfortable running programs because their schoolyard became really well naturalized. Uh, the principal there brought in rocks and trees and so they, their yard started less looking like a prison yard. Uh, <laughs> the asphalt jungle, yeah. Oh my gosh, and looking much more uh, you know, interesting and more play spaces. And so what we did is, uh, we worked with their grade fives in September, grade fours in November, and worked all the way down to their kindergartens throughout every month. We would spend a day, full day, running programs that the teachers recommended. Uh, so we would develop I love a program. That. So, so you were coming from the outdoor ed center and working with all the grades and transitioning the school to be like an outdoor and environmental hub or center. That's pretty revolutionary, yeah. Pam. That's about 20 years ahead of its time. That's amazing. <laughs> well, and I think Peel also had sort of um, an outdoor program like that where they would go, you know, I think classroom without walls or whatever, but they kind of were doing the same thing, but we didn't know about each other's sort of programs. Right, right. And they were doing it on a system-wide level where we were just doing it one school. And so, but I think the lessons learned was that the more that you involve the teachers, the more, and, and empower them, the more the chance that the kids will have a chance to get outside on their own schoolyard. Absolutely. And so that actually led me to work with Hillary again and Evergreen and in the environmental ed on some summer institutes. Okay. Uh, working, building teacher capacity. So we called the first one, you know, teaching outside. Um, and we worked with, I think, 40 teachers over three days. It was a huge hit. People loved it. They wanted the tools to do it themselves. Exactly. And that was a game changer. Um, and from that, we realized, again, like knowledge doesn't lead to action. You need to model it. You need to live it. You need to practice it. You need to do the same activities that the teachers would do. They would feel more comfortable. And then from there, we saw teachers sort of then be, make it their own. Um, and then, it's of course, so true. led to the AQ. I was just about now... to say, and then the AQ evolution journey. And, you know, in writing and facilitating, you know, for eight years, I, I wrote and facilitated for environmental science, the first evolution of environmental education. We know it's now called environmental education with Nipissing University in my board at outdoor ed centers and teachers from many boards came. We did it face to face from 2000 to 2009. And I found this process of transitioning teachers to this way of teaching locally in your schoolyard, integrating the curriculum with environmental ed and inquiry approach, all that pedagogy of environmental ed. It really took, depending on their comfort level, but even with the most comfortable people, three AQs to make, yes. this, to make this transformational shift in, in teaching. Um, and as we know, this isn't a required AQ. So we know that, you know, teaching environmental or the, the Ontario curriculum through environmental lens is a part of, or, or it started with shaping our school, shaping our future, but, um, but, but not everybody necessarily does that. So it's, it's fascinating. So you took this evolution from the Summer Institute and then AQs started coming around and we had the guidelines. So tell me about that process. And you, you do that 
as well. With well, Hillary, it was, I just want people to know because I've interviewed Hillary. So when people, yes, when yes. Pam says Hillary and everybody else on this podcast, because Hillary's connected to everybody in environmental ed, <laughs> it's Dr. Hillary Inwood who is at Okay, so thank you. Sorry, continue, Pam. So after the summer institutes, I had been part of the writing team for the Outdoor Education AQ, which is, I think, a Schedule D in a Ontario speak. That means a one course. 125 hours of learning and i know grant linney from uh council of outdoor educators of ontario took that on uh to teach it but i was part of the writing team with grant for the and guideline exactly okay because i wrote based on the guideline i then wrote that for york so i love these connections i didn't yes. realize you were a part of the guideline yeah awesome that's an awesome guideline <laughs> Well, and it, it was, again, trying to be very holistic, but the difference with the environmental ed one is really when um, it, it became apparent when Mitch Thomas show showed up in terms of he was one of our guest speakers, and he really spoke to the urban experience in yes. that the outdoor experience is wonderful and we you know we wanted to get uh, teachers teaching outside and teaching in outside and you know building that character piece but one thing the environmental ed does differently which i really appreciated was acknowledging that we needed to learn sustainability in our lives in the city because yes. canadians 80 percent of us live in cities in yes. the state it's about 50 percent worldwide it's about 50 percent but canadians most of us are in cities and if we don't acknowledge and embrace living sustainability in cities we're again are going to perpetrate that old myth that we're not connected that our consequences don't matter that what we do doesn't make a difference like all of those pieces so, yeah. so when i rewrote the aq number two just recently a big push was on sustainability in cities eco justice in cities the marginalized and that really came out really in COVID that we saw who suffered the most, our Northwest, which is our marginalized communities, communities of race, communities, people of color. And it wasn't the forest val or the forest, you know, um, that wonderful swath in the middle of the city of privileged uh, treed yes. communities. These right. are not people that suffered from COVID. And Jacqueline Scott has just written an article about that, that um, white privileged communities, uh, research data says, have more trees than racialized communities and communities impacted by poverty yes. and that intersection of socioeconomic and, and race. And we also, just to go back to what you're saying with the outdoor ed and the standalone outdoor ed and this outdoor experience, you know, we, we know that um, traditionally, in uh, the last 50 years in outdoor education, that that has very much been a white-centered experience. And yeah. so with environmental education and with outdoor education, we need to examine that. And that's what I'm doing on, on this podcast. So that's what you've been doing with, with the AQs is then, is um, adding more equity pieces in and, and anti-oppression lens, anti-racism lens. Yeah, and that's so important. Like when you think about when I we were looking at eco justice through the eco schools lens, you know, we first kind of looked at do actions 
you know, do schools that are typically in low socioeconomic areas, do they embrace equal schools just as much as the white privileged schools? And interesting enough, in TDSB, we find that we have platinum schools from low, uh, what we call the Learning Opportunities Index, LOI. Uh, we find high platinum schools in those areas, as well as high platinum schools in privileged areas. And I remember from one of the, a, a great teacher in one of the schools saying, you know what, we may not be really good at parent engagement because the parents aren't available. We, not, we may not have the best math scores or EQA scores, but man, we kill, or like, and I don't want to use that term, but we really rock out the Eco Schools program because we can do it because it's accessible to us. We can, you know, go out there and pick up litter. We can do that. We can learn about the water system. And I love that because there was such pride in both the kids, in that team, and in the teacher, in knowing that yes, they could make a difference in their community in a way that was customized to their culture, to their space, to who they were and their identity. Um, well, and, and this so is one of the things with eco-inquiry, Pam, is that I've had interest with the eco-inquiry website, and it's only one year old, from 65,000 views in one year from over 107 countries. So the concern about the state of the environment is universal. We all are over 60% water. We all need clean air. We know that there are you know, huge eco-justice issues, but it, it has, environmental education has the potential to be a universally inclusive movement and it needs to be recognized as such. Right. And if we tap in, like I love some of the UN uh, and UNESCO pop publications, even the Rio 1999 manifesto put out by the people for sustainability. And it talks about honoring the indigenous voice and experience because they uh, speak so well and are connected to the land versus the white colonized view, which is this hierarchy where the land is sort of somewhere to be used and raped and pillaged, basically. Yes, yes. Um, and, and that same oppressive framework has oppressed Indigenous peoples everywhere. So this whole manifesto of sustainability needs to come from the ground up because this is what matters. Yes. It, if we, we've got to get rid of this mindset that we know better. We don't. Right. So environmentalism, um, if one is an environmentalist, by one's very nature, one can't be racist because it needs to be an inclusive movement, not just of, of people, but also the indigenous idea of all my relations, of the relation of the water, the relation of the air, the relation of, of so-called natural resources, animals, that sort of thing. So, so now I, I want to, if you're okay, I'm gonna just take this on a, on a different track. So one of the things that I see you as being masterful at is working with intermediate students. And, um, and one of the reasons why I really was keen on interviewing you is because of the connection you make to active citizenship through the eco schools role, but also just the, the work that you do with youth to engage them, to empower them, 
and to give them the skills to be creative problem solvers. So can you tell us about how that has evolved for you and maybe even talk about the interesting role you had this year or not? <laughs> That's up to you. But I really want to focus on this sort of the this particular age level where, you know, students of any age can start to realize their problems and they need to be um, that antidote to eco-anxiety is eco-action. But how do you really hone in on that with, with a particular age group that you work with? Absolutely. And let me just start with this year. So this year, central staff uh, in the TDSB, so it included myself, um, many instructional leaders for the other disciplines, as well as outdoor education teachers were pulled back into the classroom. And we were typically assigned the virtual classroom. So TDSB sort of created this virtual school of you know, only 66,000 students, <laughs> you know, basically <laughs> another school board, yeah. <laughs> um, and the advantage of virtual is we weren't back and forth, back and forth, like many like of the- Like we were in YRDSB, where I started face-to-face -face and pivoted yeah. online. Yes, we learned to be flexible. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. And so, you know, it was a challenge for me, absolutely. It'd been a while that I had been in front of kids uh, directly for that long. Um, but what I loved about the intermediate students is that they came with so much knowledge and, and expertise themselves. And uh, I mean, I would have loved teaching them face to face because even in the breakout rooms, you know, it's funny, they named one of their, their teams the awkward silence team because when they got in <laughs> breakout rooms, none of them spoke, you know, and, you know, I think huge difference between those intermediate students and my yes. primary, my grade two students where they talk, 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 had their cameras on the whole time. I mean, there are comics about this, right? So, so you've got the awkward silence crowd. How do you engage them? Well, exactly. And, and so it was, it was trying to, you know, try, difficult to try to figure out how to do that. But what I liked Absolutely. is when we focused on, like every week we had a quote of the week, every, um, you know, the banners would change. So I really tried to introduce eco champions of, the, of youth and of, of different, either indigenous like Autumn Peltier or um, a gentleman from Mexico region or all the different eco champions of color because I wanted them to know that there were people like them out there. And most of my class was of color, um, you know, from 20 different schools. And the other part was to, you know, find out what they were passionate about. And they were, you know, some of them definitely would let me know they're suffering from eco-anxiety, they're worried about climate change. A lot of them were very passionate about equity and women's issues. Um, and so when you tapped into something like that, like even in our financial literacy unit, um, I had a colleague who worked with me because we were um, 20 kids were uh, from Spaghetti and um, really. And how many kids did you have in total? Uh, 37. Grade seven, eights. And with All 20, eight. All eight, with 20 of them, 20 yeah. identified special needs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, once once you got, you know, the financial literacy, we said, well, let's look at minimum wage and let's look at minimum wage from the eyes of race. And it was interesting because there was a study done from city to city to city, how black uh, minimum or how black workers are more at more likely to be at the minimum wage how black women were likely to even more at the minimum wage and the wage gap and so we looked at that and the kids were extremely passionate about it because this was their lived experience 
you know, why can't we get better jobs? Why are we still working multiple jobs in my family? Why is, you know, where is the money? Why is there a glass ceiling? Um, and so when you put that to issues like water, or you put that to issues like access to, you know, green spaces, they were really passionate about it. And through the water, we looked at uh, the fast fashion industry, we looked at um, access to water. One, uh, one student made a connection to the decaying lead pipes in Newfoundland, to the water access in um, uh, Niskanta, and how they were very similar. And so, when and so talent- you must have been integrating the curriculum, really. Like if we talk about global competencies of communication, collaboration, problem solving, what you're talking about is eco-justice issues or teaching the curriculum really through an eco-justice context so that yeah. they are learning to research, they are finding their passion, and you are giving them some tools to learn how to solve some of these problems. I mean, that's that's the hope. That's the, that's the big scale. Um, right. Well, even some of them were researching farther, like we don't necessarily teach climate change as a subject until grade nine. But one of my kids, because we were doing food waste and uh, looking at water and food waste and using that through our math unit, one of them wanted to know, well, why is methane such an issue? Like, how does food waste in landfills creating methane? And she didn't understand climate change that well, but she read more. And then she did her own podcast. Um, Amazing. Amazing. You know, children in kindergarten want to learn about climate change. They're hearing about it more. Why is this? not in our curriculum big broad Ontario question why is learning about climate change and some of the steps for climate action not in our Ontario curriculum yeah and why do we wait till grade nine when half of them can't sleep because they know they feel that their world is on fire we need to address this eco-anxiety a lot earlier yeah they participated in the climate strikes they They went out you know they're doing it outside of school so exactly so what yeah. were some of the eco actions that you've had students take on in the past and have students of this age level worked with younger students? I'm curious about that. How do you get them to sort right. of mentor? Well, and that kind of brings me back to my role, what we did with the middle schools conference. We recognize that if we, these kids, they want to be leads. It's kind of what we said about the outdoor journeys that you move from under your parents' wings and when it becomes your own, you, you just love it. And so for the middle schools conference, rather than teaching them just how to be a leader, we said, okay, and this was in conversation with another good friend of ours, Bonnie Anderson. So we met, you know, over breakfast and said, okay, how are we going to make this happen? How can we do this in a day to empower them? And, and so the idea of, you know, train the trainer came up. How would this model look like from a student perspective? And it really resonated with me that if this the students that came to middle schools had practice teaching other students a skill or a game or something that was, you know, nutshell size during the day. Could they then expand that to run an eco event and teach younger students at their school? Brilliant. exactly what happened and we had great feedback from the teachers so we've done this model a couple of years where we choose a topic so let's say last year um, we did ocean plastics or plastics in general we took the project wild games which everybody knows and love and can be done in a gym or on a again a asphalt or just you know plain schoolyard 
and we change some of the things. So instead of um, uh, like a, the game octopus or, you know, where the kids are catching, we made that about ghost nets. So we changed the actual premise of that instead of an octopus grabbing their prey, we said, here are ghost nets. And so now the it person in this game is a ghost net. And as people go by, they're capturing more and more of the fish or unwanted things in the ocean and these are dying. And so kids had never learned about ghost nets, but they had played the octopus game before. And so I love this adaptation yeah. of simulation games. This is exactly what I've done with eco games, which is a part of eco inquiry. And I also really loved it that you've trained intermediate students because yes. their enthusiasm is going to trickle throughout the school. And so you were saying 20 years ago, you worked with teachers and isn't this evolution interesting that you are working with the leaders of the students, the intermediate students themselves who have, and okay, here's my next question. And I'm a, I'm a, I don't have this written down, but this is just coming to me. Did you notice, or have you done any sort of research, qualitative, quantitative, or even in your own observations of their eco-anxiety changing as they became eco-leaders? And did you notice, were they, were they discovering a sense of purpose? So that not, I, and I, that's a really good point in terms of making it the research a bit more formal, but we did interview uh, three of the middle school's teachers and asked them to be part of a conference. And they talked about the efficacy that the students felt. And I think that's a key piece. When students have a venue and the efficacy to do something and they can follow through, then they became empowered and they wanted to do more. And so that action piece is really important. It brings me back to actually Daniel Goldman's work on Ecolit, um, yes. how we talk about the social emotional learning piece of building ecological literate citizens. And he talks about you know, five principles, developing. I'm just reading that book right now. It's my newest favorite book. I love it. Please love tell it. us the five principles. I'm so yeah, glad you're so talking about this. And for our listeners, I'm sorry to interrupt one more time. I have a kitchen renovation going on downstairs. And so if there's any background noise, I'm not going to stop this. There just may be a little bit of background noise of drills and hammers, things like that. But I'm not stopping my kitchen reno. I've been waiting for 20 years for this kitchen reno. So we're gonna we're gonna forge ahead and continue. Okay, so tell us a piece about the five yes. elements of eco-literacy through Daniel Goldman's book. Exactly. And this is again the premise on how I build ecological literacy in all that I do because it all connects. So whether it be a project um, like making films or whether it be this middle school's leadership conference, these principles are so solid that you can weave, like they can be your guidepost. They can be that. that I totally agree. We're just yeah. talking okay, so about number this one. in the um, in the environmental ed course that I'm facilitating. This is the assignment. Their culminating task yeah. is ecological literacy to weave all these in. I'm going to stop interrupting. Okay, you tell us the top. The okay, five. so number one, develop empathy for all forms of life. So whether that be putting a vermiculture in your classroom and getting to know worms or getting to know the plants and trees, adopting a tree on your schoolyard, developing empathy for all forms of life 
And then I would also expand it to developing perspectives and empathy for different cultures and different ways of knowing. Again, understanding all my relations. Number two, embracing sustainability as a community practice. As much as we, we think our individual actions can make a difference, it's not until we put ourselves with others and put us you know, working together that it really makes a difference. So when we embrace sustainability as a community practice, so community gardens, community recycling, school programs for picking up batteries, it works together and together we make a bigger difference. Number three, making the invisible visible. So I think about, you know, how many single water bottles are actually in your schools? counting them, collecting them, and then making a sculpture out of them kind of shows, oh my gosh, we've got a problem here. Or celebrating the things that you are doing well. For example, how many lights, doing an audit. Oh my gosh, we as a school are saving this much carbon dioxide by turning off the lights or by walking to school. So by making and measuring what is invisible, celebrating it or making it visible so you can make a change. Anticipating unintended consequences. This one's a little bit harder to understand, but I give an example from a school who started to look at, you know, buying lettuce in those plastic cam, uh, clamshells or looking at how much paper you're using by not, again, it's kind of related to making the invisible uh, visible, but kind of going, if we print this out and we keep doing this, how much of an impact it's going to make? And if so we much do it during COVID this past year, we had to use certain kinds of masks or perhaps gloves, but the unintended consequences are just, yeah, disastrous for the environment. Disastrous. And even the whole mm -hmm. plastic industry, this yes. is unintended consequences. Interesting enough, plastics were designed so we wouldn't use ivory. Uh... We you know, and probably need, other ivory at first and now other resources as well that, you know, are becoming more expensive or whatever. But yeah. I, I, you know, I think again, just to, to reiterate in the blip of time, but the first oil well was only drilled in 1851. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we've had a few generations high on the hog of fossil fuels and look at what we've done to the planet. And we better yeah. quickly figure out a way to adapt our way out of this predicament that we've become addicted to because not, this party's not going to last much longer. So, well, and that's it. And so within that is systems thinking and how things are connected and, and understanding relationships. Like I really think relationships are all that there is. So what is our relationship? So understanding that. And the fifth principle is understanding how nature sustains life and looking at fresh, like for us, it was this year, fresh water. We don't have a lot and understanding how water sustains us and how water has this responsibility in, from an indigenous perspective that it wants to clean, it wants to refresh, it wants to give life, but how we're taking that away from water's ability by polluting it and using it in wasteful ways um, and how so much of our lifestyle, you know, keeping it up, you know, consuming really impacts uh, nature's ability to sustain and how those tipping points will soon be reached and nature can't rebound. Um, can I, so I just say we've done at my school, I've led a water inquiry um, with bringing in uh, Indigenous knowledge keepers from our close community as well. Our First Nations Métis Inuit consultant, Tawana Brooks, our Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe Wawin 
language speaker Jody Johnston. And, you know, a water inquiry for everything that you've talked about for our listeners to, it's a really perfect place to start. And if you oh, can, I'm going to yes. put in a plug for Natural Curiosity, their mentor text, the second edition, um, where it builds in and gives case studies because uh, for building in the Indigenous perspective, because people are really, really terrified that they're going to appropriate Indigenous culture. But um, getting that as a mentor text and then working with your First Nations, Métis and Inuit consultants in your board are really good places to start. So um, I just sort of want listeners to hear that, that those are some, if you're wondering, well, how do I go about doing this? Those are some sort of first first steps of, of, of ways you could, you could get started. Absolutely. And we listened and read and um, we were privileged to have um, Indigenous voices through uh, live webinars and those are out there. Um, absolutely. Yes. They need to be heard. Absolutely. Thank you, Pam. That is that is amazing. And so um, so what what did you find with online with your students? How did you help them with making that the transitions of these five concepts that you've talked about? Was there any way to do it online? And OK, I'm going to say the dreaded word because this is going to be happening in the fall, very likely in my board hybrid. Do you have Absolutely. any suggestions for how to, any suggestions at all for how to possibly make this work in a hybrid teaching situation where the educator is both in person with students and online? How do we, mm. can, I want to take my students outside. Do you have any tips or tricks for that? Well, in, you know, I, I started thinking about that because I, at one point I wasn't sure where I was going to be. So, you know, hybrid teaching was, okay, how do I do that? Um, I think with the intermediate students and with the middle school students and with the high school students, there's this opportunity that they are amazing resources themselves. So I think of one of my students that created a Minecraft escape room. You know, that's something he was that person was really good at, perhaps not so good at some of the other stuff I, I challenged them with. Right, but how do we integrate the tech? The tech's not going away. No. And our, our, you know, my grade two students, by, you know, May, I said to them, okay, you guys are ready to work in tech companies now. I mean, they became so skilled at so many different programs and they have the growth mindset about it. It's really... Yes. It really is quite phenomenal. So how, and also I have to say, Pam, there were things about my students, about their complex identities that actually I found easier to get to know them in some ways, their pets, their siblings, their families. Um, they brought in some ways more of themselves and we're just all talking heads, right? And we're constantly talking, talking, talking. So how can we take the best of learning yeah. about our students Starting with this empathy, this is also, you know, Daniel Goldman says social and emotional learning. So starting yeah. with this empathy and then, you know, not just going, okay, so if we're face to face, let's chuck out the tech. No, how do we, how do we actually sort of interweave all of it? Do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, well, I think, again, if I, my next step would be to tap in to the students more. 
let them take the lead, which I didn't because I was, again, I got better at that. And of course, you know, having them to do the different projects, but I would start more with that is have them take the lead. I like the idea of the genius hour. I like the idea of having a project that they work on over time. That's from their interest, but couldn't like one of my colleagues came up with this great idea for the water one was that some students can go outside some of my students could not so they live in apartments and the elevator was unsafe for them to go up and down to get outside or they had to wait for other people to be around for that to happen and so really acknowledging the equity piece so you know as we always say get to know your students where are they from but could could we not and I think this is what some of them could do is that there is tech available. So let's say we're doing the urban water cycle. Well, so some of them could get out and take photographs of their storm grate or do a walk around their neighborhood and take pictures of a rain barrel or permeable surfaces. But some of them could do it from Google Street View. Right. So is absolutely so a lot of flexibility and options. Absolutely. And then, you know, bringing in, we had an outdoor educator um, who came and said, okay, what do you want to do? We want to learn about benthic macroinvertebrates. And he got us to choose the location, which I thought was great. So he had the map there and said, okay, this one will be a lake more, it will be kind of a lake shore. This will be a creek. And he set up on tripod and he dipped in the stream and did the benthic right in front of us. So again, modeling how to do that. Now, could you, you know, could the students then do that? Or modeling a transect study like even the simple you know rope with you know what do you see and watch it over time and giving them the projects or especially as the winter months get closer that moon study you know absolutely the indigenous moons Yes, and, and, and teaching through phonology and connections. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Going out there and doing the journaling and, and then recording that. And again, everything can be done out the window or on your, if you have a back porch or could you go for a walk? So again, right. that flexibility. So, and in the classroom, giving more time for independent work. So kids working together on an independent project, setting their own time schedule, Right, I think is, and then supporting because I had a lot of students more about project project based learning where you're integrating. Right. That's that's a great idea. Like the kid who did the podcast. So she was working from Bangladesh because of family commitments. So sure, hours were very different. But so she did the project with her family. So she couldn't do the necessary the project with other people in Canada at the time, but she did the project with other kids in India and with in her family. And so she was the one who did the podcast, my goodness. So allowing for the very, you know, different options of presenting weight of knowledge or the interview. Like I think of Kathy Nunley saying, you know, like giving kids the choice and then interviewing them after. And what have you learned? So giving that independent time so you could, you know, work with the different students either online or in front of you, but then pulling them aside and and having that conversation for assessment, talking to them, what, what came out of, what are your big highlights? Kids were good at that. And even, you know, if they're presenting, allowing uh, for longer consolidation periods where the students are in person and online and we have these consolidation conversations 
um, and, and having those reflection pieces built in. That's yeah. brilliant. Pam, what I'm noticing, Not, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, but, but, but be careful. Not everybody has the independent skills. And so exactly. don't forget to scaffold that. I Do was going to say this. with your, with yeah. your experience with um, all kinds of students, you wouldn't set them up. I mean, you can give them choices, but you could also say, here's a graphic organizer, or here's a frame for a Google Slides, or let's take a look at some examples, obviously, of the six minute podcast, that kind of thing. You're not just going to set them completely on their own, but that's good teaching. So we we know we know how to we know how to do that stuff. Yeah. But but what I've noticed is so you've talked to us about a 20, 30 year teaching journey. And you are constantly adapting and constantly staying positive. Um, Pam, this idea of empathy and, and social and emotional learning, through these ups and downs and peaks and valleys as an educator, what wisdom have you gained for yourself, for self-care and for, you know, we talk about students experiencing eco-anxiety. I still experience eco-anxiety all the time. What are some yeah. of your, uh, you know, you're, you're at the cottage right now. What are your, some of your self-care tips and tricks to just have longevity in this field and, and stay hopeful so that we can continue on this responsibility of hope ethic with our students? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think fear holds us back and fear is something like even walking into the virtual classroom, you know, fear, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to learn the technology fast enough? And am I going to go, you know, flat on my face? And so I reread the book Courage to Teach by Parker Palmer. And it really talks about our identity and our identity being who we are. And obviously identity is so important in equity, understanding where you're from, your place, who, you know, what your purpose is. And I always think, you know, my passion coming back to the core of who I am and making sure I surround myself and, you know, feed myself with what's going to feed that identity what's going to energize me around my core beliefs. And so that sometimes means like right now, um, having the courage to just uh, spend time in nature and, and not be fearful that I'm wasting my time, you know, mm -hmm. but also yes. connecting with like-minded individuals, uh, rereading things that remind me of my purpose of who I am so that I can be renewed, but also then build that courage to move forward. And again, he talks about my your soul and your role, reconnecting your soul to what you believe your role in life is um, and grounding yourself because I found that, um, and you and I both did an interview for another position and in that interview, I, I didn't do very well. And I realized that I was trying to be someone that I was not because I felt that they wanted me to be this particular type of person. And I'm not there yet. I, that's a journey that I do want to go on. It was the equity journey and I want to get better at that, but I'm not there yet. And so I was tr pretending I was for this interview and it really rocked my world. Um, and it shook me off. And then I realized if I had spoke more from who I am right now, and in again, having that growth mindset, then I think I would have uh, done better. But always connecting who you are to what you do. 
That's so fascinating, you know, yeah. because I actually hired an interview coach, a wonderful interview coach, and uh, her name's Karen Friedman. And um, she talked as well about understanding your core. That's the very first thing you have to do. And so if people are just starting on this environmental journey, or even if you're partway through, or even if you're, you know, 20, 30 years in, finding your core values. Um, for me, I'll tell you the three words. She said, bring it down to three words and an image. And um, for me, it's community, joy, and engagement. And I realized actually that pivoting to online didn't inhibit that experience entirely, that I was able to connect with the students in my community. It pained me when they were absent and uh, chronic absenteeism. I'm actually doing my master's work on that right now and how to get students to come back. But also this feeling that, you know, I want to teach with joy and, and work hard to have the students engaged. So we've talked about how the environment and the outdoors can do that. And this, the last year and a half, and I think the next year as well, is going to continue to challenge us. It's going, it, but if we have these core values, we can bring them into any role that we do. Let's face it, outdoor education centers and some boards, these are jobs that are few and far between. But you have spoken to us about how every educator can be an outdoor environmental leader in their school and in their schoolyard and work to empower youth to, to do the same. And for me, going from the outdoor education center job to going back to the school, people say just the school. I do not say that anymore. It is the most fulfilling place to be because I'm taking all of the things that we're talking about, taking all of these theories, constantly learning, learning, learning. And then I truly feel the joy of putting that into practice. Um, and with the Eco Inquiry website, my hope is to inspire other people to take this on in the place where they're teaching and yeah. where the learning is happening and to add in that virtual element to, to build in that flexibility piece. Doing them both at the same time is, is going to be hard. There's no doubt about it. Um, if I could just say, you know, I, I think that, 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 that although outdoor ed is very, very flexible, I think there's also something to be said for structure you know, and, and having structure in, in um, and also using those tools a little bit ahead of time with planning where what you were talking about with the videos, I, I zip out and I do these little eco inquiry videos. And then what I could say to my students who are at home, okay, I've pre-recorded a video for you of a little bit about what we're gonna do. And then this is how you can expand it. And then we'll all come together and consolidate. Either that or we're just gonna schlep the computer outside and they can, you know, it'll be all bouncy and they can try and watch, you know, the case. I'm not sure how it's gonna work. We're gonna try both and we'll get back to people, you know? <laughs> You know, I think there's I think there's value in both. I mean, I, I didn't experiment with the GoPro, but I really appreciated the virtual, uh, like my outdoor educator who already knew how to use the tripod, who figured out how to do the point of view and all of that, to, because it made the experience compact and great in the time that I had. And then it allowed us to focus. So I agree. I think a little bit of planning uh, on getting those experiences and then maybe having them mimic it. You know, now it's I've done one 
Now I'm going to teach you and then have them bring in those uh, those experiences from their perspective. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Pam, thank you so much for your time. I just, I really love what you said about how understanding your core values in this really turbulent time in education where there are opinions coming from every direction. Um, so understanding your core values and, you know, checking out that resource by Daniel Goleman on um, eco-literacy, it's, it's fantastic. I'll put that in the, um, in the, um, in this podcast next to uh, your name. And are there any, just to leave off, are there any other resources that you would suggest to people that you think, you know, this, this could really help you along your journey? You know, and there are, I thought of that because you had you sort of primed me before, but one of the ones I keep coming back to is Joseph Cornell. Um, because he's a tried and true outdoor educator that brings joy into his work. And you, so when you mentioned that he has such a love for kids and such a love of sort of uh, how to plan the experience to maximize the experience outside. And so he has also four principles for designing a program going outside. And one of them is to activate enthusiasm. And so the kids are outside, you can imagine, you know, it's that recess mentality, we'll tap into that and then deepen and he uses the empathy piece and then has a reflection piece. And so it's guided my way of working outside in a way. Now it's, it's I can't remember, it's not his first book, Sharing Nature with Children, and it's not his second book, Listening to Nature, but I believe it is his third book where he really talks about the principles of teaching kids outside. And I keep going back to him um, because he has such a heart and it really resonates with me. Um, so I would recommend that book for anybody sort of starting that journey of working with students outside in a way that they want to know how to manage the group in a way that's respectful and honors the student identity. Pam Miller, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I've learned so much about you and from you, and I know that our listeners will really enjoy uh, this podcast. Thank you so much.